The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're talking about evolutionary psychology. What can it tell us about why we do the things we do? And what's just pure speculation? Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and I'm joined by four panelists today, uh, starting with Dr. Maeve O'Donovan, PhD. She's an associate professor and chair of philosophy at Notre Dame of Maryland University in Baltimore. Her research combines work in philosophy of mind, feminist philosophy, epistemology, and disability studies. She's currently writing a book on misunderstandings and misuses of evolutionary biology in evolutionary psychology and philosophy of mind. Welcome, Maeve. Thank you so much for having me, Desiree. And Dr. Kirk Honda is chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University in Seattle, and he's been practicing as a psychotherapist in Seattle since 1996. He's also the host of the Psychology in Seattle podcast. Thanks for being here, Kirk. Thanks for having me. And Catherine Salmon is a professor of psychology at the University of Redlands in Southern California. She is a co-editor of the books Evolutionary Psychology, Public Policy and Personal Decisions, and Family Psychology, An Evolutionary Perspective. Her most recent book is The Secret Power of Middle Children. Hello, Catherine. Hi, thanks for having me. And Glenn Gare is professor and chair of psychology, as well as founding director of evolutionary studies at the State University of New York in New Paltz. He's the author of Evolutionary Psychology 101 and co-author of Mating Intelligence Unleashed. Good to have you here, Glenn. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Okay, so let's start with getting uh, just the definition out of the way. What is evolutionary psychology? So this is Glenn from New York, and if it's okay, I'll... I'll try to field that first since it's uh, related to my work uh, in the book Evolutionary Psychology 101. And um, a lot of the work that I've done is really, you know, defining and sort of understanding what evolutionary psychology is. Um, and, and I'll say that uh, it's one of these things that is variously defined. And I think there are some sort of um, misconceptions about it out there. So I appreciate the opportunity to sort of speak to it in, on this program. As I see it, evolutionary psychology is essentially the idea that we can best understand human behavior if we understand why human behavior evolved in the first place. Um, so it's essentially an approach of looking at scientific psychology or the behavioral sciences by asking Darwinian-based questions, um, using Darwin's theory to help illuminate questions about behavior. So if we look at something um, that's a basic aspect of, of human behavior, from an evolutionary perspective, we'll ask the question of how might this have been adaptive for our ancestors, for instance? Why why is this behavioral pattern something that would have evolved in the first place? And once you start asking questions from that angle, um, you can really start stepping back and seeing a lot of things in psychology from a sort of deeper perspective, I think. So I'd say that evolutionary psychology, in short, is understanding um, any aspect of human psychology or behavior using an evolutionary framework. I'll add my just two cents, uh, just in terms of another way of also sort of just 
thinking about it in terms of the context of other kinds of scientific approaches to um, study in general. And one is that I think of it in, in many ways, too, as also being the sort of human equivalent of behavioral ecology. So I actually did my undergraduate work in studying animal behavior. And so for me, it was a very natural transition to use the same kind of theoretical approach and scientific approach that's used in studying animal behavior in order to study human behavior. So thought I'd slide that in there. And this is Maeve. Hi. <laughs> and I've I'm a critic here, so I'll preface my comments by saying that that it's really great that you're having all of us on here, Desiree, uh, because I think a lot of the misunderstandings uh, that Glenn mentioned are often media misunderstandings. I think people who are doing the research have obviously a more complex understanding of what's happening, and it will be very good to flush that out. Uh, but the one thing that I would object to so far in the definition is that it's scientific. I think that's one of the things for us to discuss. Um, that there are different methodologies for different disciplines, and psychology has a really interesting place in being a social science that uses some scientific methods, but also a lot of what I would call philosophy uh, so it'll, and logic. So it'll be interesting to work out where that crisscross occurs. Yeah, this is Kirk in Seattle, and I, I, I'm guessing I was asked to be on this panel because I've been vocal on my podcast about the criticisms of some of the uh, conclusions from studies in evolutionary psychology. And I just want to say I'm really looking forward to being proved wrong today. I have longed to uh, have this debate uh, because on the Internet, I get a lot of angry emails from people that are perhaps not in the field, and I try to debate it with them, and it doesn't go places. So I'm really looking forward to being to being told that some of my conclusions about evolutionary psychology are wrong. So thanks for that. Oh, this is going to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> Why is evolutionary psychology so controversial? So I was just going to say, I think there's lots of reasons why it can be controversial, and I'm sure other people will chime in with the ones that they think are most relevant. But I think that actually, um, Chris already talked about one of them, and that it's that sometimes people um, misunderstand uh, in terms of the interpretation of the results. So some people, as he was saying, some people like um, a finding because um, they think it justifies perhaps their own behavior or something. Um, when you know, most of us are interested in explaining why behavior occurs, we're not speaking as to whether we think the behavior is a good behavior or a bad behavior, just by saying that it's an evolved behavior. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, it can be con- seen as controversial, because the findings might have problematic implications for somebody who, who makes that mistake of assuming that just because something evolved or something is natural in that sense, that that means it's either good or bad. It doesn't really speak to that. Uh, this is Maeve. Thanks, Catherine. Um, and I guess some of the terminology you're using it goes to the heart of why it's controversial to a lot of the people that I work with. Um, so critical disability studies, critical race theory, feminist theory, uh, I'm also interested in some of the uh, disability self-advocacy organizations like ASAN. When we talk about what's natural, uh, there's a long history of criticizing that. You could say sort of the history of intellectual thought has been about trying to determine what is it that exists outside of human society and human culture and what doesn't. And there's a lot of good, I'm a philosopher by training, so there's a lot of good uh, contemporary philosophy basically since Kant made the claim that 
when you're studying the world, you're actually studying yourself studying the world. You can't study the world without being in it to study it. And we've seen that confirmed in the natural sciences after Kant. But so that when we talk about natural, it's a really complicated term to use. And I know, Catherine, you're using it the way that a researcher in the field uses it. But a lot of the time, what we see is that when people hear natural, they think that's something that occurred almost accidentally because of an environment in which certain pressures created a certain type of naturally occurring object. And in the work that I do, the things that are considered naturally occurring objects really aren't. Things like what a disability is or what a woman is or what desire is or what disgust is. There's so much research that's been going on for so long about the cultural production of all of those and that humans certainly have behaviors. There's no question about it, but those behaviors... The, the things that those behaviors are responding to vary so tremendously uh, from group to group and even within groups uh, when you start looking intersection, intersectionally at people's class and their economic status and all those other things, you start to see huge variations in people's responses. So when I look at this, I think here's a, a promising way to talk about some general trends, but when we start to reduce them down to naturally occurring universal type you know, fixed modules, I know not everybody agrees they're fixed, but we're starting to talk about things that really aren't there, that are a creation of social science, natural science, culture, rather than something we simply find in the world. Right. I, I would argue that actually one of the things that, that actually is happening more and more in evolutionary psychology is obviously if you're interested in trying to elucidate um, you know, some sort of sense of what humans are, for example, as opposed to in comparison to other species, um, obviously there is a certain amount of looking at sort of things that are in that general sense, or what we might refer to as, as human universals from that standpoint. Although really most of the time what we're talking about is the mechanisms being universal, and very obviously environment is one of the things that shapes the output of whatever these universal mechanisms are. And so I don't I don't actually see that as being something that, that most evolutionary psychologists don't take into account. And there certainly are people within the field who are more focused on looking at what factors influence individual differences in terms of behavior. And then there are other people who are interested in, in looking more at the mechanism itself. And so they're looking at, at more of a universal uh, level of that, too, as well. So I don't think it, it's the case that, that people are ignoring that. I think that there is a certain uh, extent that the initial work is done at a broader level, and then you start looking at, once you've articulated that, then you can start looking at where these individual differences lie and, and the types of factors that shape them. And, of course, they include some of those things that you were mentioning. I think perhaps, this would maybe, again, just to respond quickly, I think sort of the best evolutionary psychology does that. But there is a huge amount of evolutionary psychology being done that doesn't do that. Um, I have in front of me, for, for instance, an article from 2003 called Evolved Disease Avoidance Process and Contemporary Antisocial Behavior. And it goes on to explain why it is that people have a naturally evolved reluctance to interact with and even look at people with physical disabilities. And physical disabilities are not a naturally occurring phenomenon. They're a social and cultural creation. So that we could evolve a mechanism to be responding to a particular cultural phenomenon, I don't think is what evolutionary psychology was trying to get at in the first place. This is, this is Kirk uh, in Seattle. And uh, just to pile on a little bit here, <laughs> and again, I, I'm, I'm willing to be proven wrong, uh, but uh, there are several studies in evolutionary psychology 
that I my thesis is that they don't follow the tenets of evolutionary psychology. I, I feel the tenets, the basic. I'll even grant the psychological mechanisms uh, as a as a viable, you know, uh, metaphor for uh, research. But I find that a lot of research doesn't even follow the tenets of universality and and this sort of thing. For instance, I have a study <clears throat> uh, published in Evolutionary Psychology, the journal. Uh, just last year, and it had a sample size of 38 people living in Boston, and there was no, which, you know, doesn't prove universality, and there's no comment on how they're not uh, looking at universality across cultures across the world. I understand it's an, ex it's an expensive research uh, study to actually go all around the world, so I, I, I totally get that that is a, a, an actual practical limitation to you know, prove universality of something. But they don't even mention it in the study, and there's no mention of cult possible cultural factors, which are an obvious limitation. There, there, frequently, there's, there's not a mention of it. And when it is, when uh, evolutionary psychologists, in my experience, maybe not the two you know, honorable people that are talking with us today, uh, when culture is mentioned or socialization is mentioned, typically, in my experience, there's a defensive reaction of, uh, well, you, you don't understand or um, they'll bring up some study that proves that uh, socialization doesn't have that much of an effect on, on human behavior. And uh, this isn't everybody, of course, and I, I think evolutionary psychology might be moving in a direction that starts to incorporate culture and socialization, but uh, but I think it's it still has a ways to go. So uh, that's just my opinion. Okay, this is uh, Glenn from New York, and uh, the question that Desiree posed, which has to do with sort of the the controversy or why is evolutionary psychology controversial? Um, I, personally, I think it's unfortunate that it is, and I think that. Um, there's hopefully a, a lot of great young scholars that, that are going to sort of help behavioral scientists in general best capitalize on, on the principles of evolution moving forward. But I'll tell you that I conducted a study that was published um, in Evolutionary Studies Journal a few years back with a, a student of mine, Dan Gambacorda, on exactly this question. What is it specifically about evolutionary um, explanations of behavior that seems to sort of get under some people's skin? And what we essentially hypothesized was that it comes down largely to research on the idea of evolved behavioral sex differences. So the prediction here is that it's, it's okay to talk about evolution underlying behavior or psychological processes, but once you start talking about male-female differences, this is where people sort of get sort of guarded and defensive surrounding the issues. Why is a, a smile expressed um, the same across the world and interpreted the same across the world? Um, those kinds of items, no problem. People had no problem saying, sure, that's due to, to nature. But the second that we got into the male-female differences, that's where people started having a very big effect to say that this is due to the environment. Not to say that it's not, but what we found was that there was a very strong trend for academics in particular um, to essentially say that male-female differences were due to the environment. 
And for a subset of academics, including particularly social scientists, they were even significantly more likely to say that hens were different from roosters due to different um, cultural upbringings or differences in their environments. So, you know, we thought that those data were pretty provocative and suggest that getting back to your basic question, Desiree, why is this field controversial? I'd argue that um, it's partly controversial because people are very uncomfortable with the idea of natural differences between males and females. And a good bit of the research, certainly not all of it, and certainly not a defining feature of the field, but a good bit of the research has spoken to male-female differences from an evolutionary perspective. And from what I've seen, that seems to be a key as to why um, why some people are very uncomfortable with the field. Okay, so there's a difference between data and that makes sense. And and that that's actually something that, that really gets to the heart of why this field is so controversial. So can we talk a little bit about how you would test an evolutionary psychology conclusion? Because I think that's one of the problems. So I'm really glad you brought that up because I think we're getting off into research that's basically sociology, sort of studying how people respond, what their belief systems are, those kinds of things, which is really interesting. And there's a lot even there to examine, but we're talking about evolutionary psychology. So that the claims that are being made in this particular field are about uh, what's, why the things that are here are here. And those are claims that this is an adaptive mechanism and it's come about through natural selection and uh, traceable back to certain, um, you know, using evolutionary theory to trace it back to certain selection pressures. So we need to get away from saying people are objecting or they have certain beliefs about the way things are right now and start talking about what that evidence is and how do you design a study. And I am interested to hear very much from Catherine uh, and Glenn uh, about their research process. But uh, from the work I've been reading in evolutionary psychology, there are basically three pieces to it that need to be used. Um, one is, of course, natural selection. And that's one of the things that isn't always understood very well. People think it's survival of the fittest, which is really an inappropriate way of putting it. It's survival of um, what suited a particular selection pressure. So, and that's what everybody's talking about with their adaptive mechanisms. Um, but those selection pressures are changing constantly, and even at the times that we're talking about, which I'm going to go into in a second, they were quite varied. Um, the second is that we have to talk about this environment of uh, evolutionary ad- adaptiveness, EEA, um, from everything I've been reading, and like Kirk, I'm, I'm interested to hear if this is wrong, we're talking about the Pleistocene era. So we're talking about evolution and natural selection, which is very, very slow. And so a lot of the claims that are made are claims that say that this evolved from selection pressures back then in sort of hunter-gatherer societies, and that's why they may not be very adaptive today. Um, and why we might not experience them today. So when we talk about it, I think it's, and, and I'll stop now because I do want to hear more from the research scientists about how they're doing it, um, but we're talking about speculating about the way things were pre-written history. Catherine? Uh, sure, I'm happy to talk about it. I think there's two different sort of actually issues, though, too, here to talk about. One is to talk about the EEA and, and what people's assumptions might be about it and based on whatever particular kind of evidence. And the other is about, you know, how people test their hypotheses. Because it's not so much that we're testing the conclusions. It's that we're testing the hypothesis and coming to some particular type of conclusion based on the data. Um, and in terms of the uh, – maybe I'll just talk about the ancestral environment part first, but – 
in terms of, of that, I mean, some of it would be the Pleistocene, but not necessarily, because it might depend on what particular adaptation you're talking about as well, right? Because there's certainly data that's shown that there have been um, some uh, adaptations that have been more recent than a lot of the ones that people might focus on, right? If we talk about fear adaptations, the adaptations to fear things like snakes or strangers for small children, those are things that you might have expected to form very early on in, in human evolution as a species and in earlier versions of humans before Homo sapiens, whereas, you know, certainly the data that looks at, you know, lactose digestion um, suggests that that's a much more recent adaptation, right, our, our ability to digest um, the sugars that are present in milk, and that that's actually an adaptation that happened because of changing environmental pressures in cultures that actually had access to milk other than maternal mother's milk, and so that there were advantages to being able to digest it over a longer period of time. So I think sometimes it, it I think it's very easy to fall into the idea that, that it has to be the Pleistocene, and, and we can talk about, you know, what kind of archaeological or paleological evidence there is that might tell us things about the Pleistocene, but it doesn't have to necessarily be that. And as well, some aspects of our environment have probably changed a lot, and some may not have. Um, you know, for the most part, without some technical innovation, you know, women have always been the ones that have, you know, uh, they've gotten pregnant, they've carried infants, they've given birth to them, they've, you know, fed them and nurtured them. Some of those things probably haven't changed very much. Obviously, there's some things that change with the advent of uh, you, know, um, you know, other supplemental foods, for example, that we give to young infants. But, um, and I'm sort of getting a little off track now too, but so uh, what I would say is that, you know, we know some things about the Pleistocene, but we don't know everything about it. So if we want to think about some of the things that were probably true of humans back then, you know, we had two sexes, diseases were an issue as they are now, that we collected, you know, plant foods, that, you know, we lived in a world that generally corresponded to the laws of physics, we chose mates, we had babies, you know, that many of these things, you know, um, we have a general idea about, and there's some evidence from, you know, archaeological and paleological sources that support that. Um, but again, I just, I want to reiterate, I don't think it's, ju it's not just the Pleistocene because some adaptations will have arisen at different points in time in our history. And yes, evolution may be relatively slow and gradual, but that doesn't mean that, um, you know, it all happened at one point in time, um, and everything, uh, goes forward from that. Um, and then just in terms of how we do, you know, I mean, how we would test hypotheses, I mean, you know, generally you have a basic theory about, evolution and natural selection and maybe sexual selection and how these shaped um, or theoretically what, what the, they mean in terms of um, testing aspects of human behavior. And so just to give one kind of example, um, because it's one that I've been puzzling over a little bit lately because it involves work of my own, has to do with the implications of inclusive fitness and the idea that, that you would um, from a genetic standpoint, be more inclined to help those that are more closely related to you than others because you're, you, it's increasing genetic fitness of you and those that are closely related to you. One of the predictions of that, that kind of a theory is, in terms of one of my areas of interest, which is sibling conflict, is that siblings that are more closely related, you would expect them to, to be more solidary, to do more things for each other, be willing to confer benefits on each other more so than 
say, for example, cousins or non-related children and things like that. And, you know, uh, one of my colleagues and I, Jessica Heeman, have been looking at this in terms of the conflict side of things. Other people have looked at this in terms of the the doing altruistic things for your siblings side of things. But we were interested in looking at the conflict side. And if you look at the conflict side of things, what what we found is actually that we we did not get data that supported our original prediction, which was that full biological siblings would have less conflict than uh, step-siblings and unrelated, un- genetically completely unrelated um, children. So we had a situation where we had full siblings, ones that shared one of the parents living in the home, so they had one genetic parent in common, and then we had those that, that were um, not genetically related children that were living in the same home. And we had expected, based on that particular aspect of theory, that we, you know, that we would find that, that the lowest levels of conflict with the biology, with the biological siblings, and then you'd see halves, and then you'd see the unrelated. And in fact, we didn't find that. Um, and uh, what we found was that, um, that, in fact, there was slightly less conflict with the, with the um, half siblings. So that that there was there was <laughs> the intermediate group was actually the full biological siblings. They did have more conflict with the unrelated at all children. But whatever is going on with the degree of relatedness, you know, we have a puzzle to figure out now, and we need to you know think about this. But so I guess what I'm saying is that you know you come up with a prediction based on theory and how it should work, and then you look for at least from my perspective, and you look for data on how that's actually working, whether it's working in the, you know, in, in, in whatever particular culture that you'd be studying it in. Ideally, you would look at it in a bunch of different cultures eventually, although you typically, most researchers will start studying it in the particular culture that they live in. Glenn and Kirk, did you want to add anything? Uh, yeah, this is Glenn from New York. Just real quickly, I'm just going to compliment what Catherine said um, by briefly mentioning David Schmidt, who is a renowned evolutionary psychologist at Bradley University, and he's kind of taken this issue, the issue that Maeve has raised, um, Kirk has raised this as well, and what, what Catherine's talking about in terms of generalizability, and David has done probably um, more cross-cultural data collection than pretty much any other behavioral scientist I'm aware of. So he's addressed a lot of these evolution-based questions, such as um, issues regarding male-female differences and mating behaviors and things like that. And he's collected data in, in several studies from, uh, you know, people in 30, 40, 50 different countries, thousands of individuals. And a lot of times the best way to answer these questions about whether something is truly a basic evolved aspect of human nature is to really study this in as many different groups of people as possible. And and there are some great, Dave Schmidt's a great example, but there's some really great examples of researchers out there who are very ser- taking that very seriously. You're listening to Science for the People, and we'll be right back after these messages. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. 
I'm Desiree Shell, and today's panel is a deep dive into the controversy around the field of evolutionary psychology. My guests are Dr. Maeve M. O'Donovan, who is currently writing a book on misunderstandings and misuses of evolutionary biology in evolutionary psychology and philosophy of mind, Dr. Kirk Honda, the host of Psychology in Seattle podcast, Glenn Gare, whose publications generally address the interface of human mating and cognitive processes and the state of evolutionary psychology within the landscape of academia, and Catherine Salmon, whose primary research interests include birth order and the family and female sexuality, particularly with regard to prostitution and pornography. All right. Now, before the break, I mentioned that I wanted to talk a little bit about universality. And, I, and I'll and i use an example to talk about that. There is the idea that, that women universally, subconsciously prefer dominant male partners. Um, so how, first of all, uh, how are we proving that? Uh, and second of all, uh, is it helpful? <laughs> Go wherever you would like with that. Catherine, do you want to start off with that? <laughs> I, I guess I could. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not even entirely sure that I think that that is, um, correct. I mean, I think that women have mate preferences and I think that their preferences, um, at least based on most of the research that I've read, um, it's not my particular area, um, focus a lot on the things that males provide in a relationship, which yeah, uh, in some cases include things like sperm or genetic quality for offspring, and they can also include resources and status. And so I think one of the arguments for why women in some environments, because I think when I've seen it, it's usually been couched as women in, under certain environmental conditions will prefer men who are physically dominant. But um, I think sometimes there's a little bit of confusion maybe about what we mean by dominance, whether we're talking about physical dominance, whether we're talking about social dominance, which sometimes is not related to physical Dominance in the modern world, anyways. Um, I think that women, uh, in terms of the, the studies that I've read on mate choice, have preferences for men who um, provide benefits as opposed to impose costs. Um, and I can imagine in a modern environment, times when, um, depending on the way you're looking at dominance, it can be either beneficial or costly, I guess would be my way of opening the discussion. That's great. And um, I, this is maybe a short comment we can come back to, but... I mean, it has to do with our previous conversation about research methods. Yeah, when we talk about this, I want to call attention to the fact that we're using terminology like women and men, and there's, you know, four decades of feminist research that's pointed out that those are some pretty problematic categories, and they're quite different from female and male. And, of course, female and male are not the only naturally occurring sexes. Um, if there are such things as naturally occurring sexes at all. So that when we're talking about this, when we set it up as, and I'm not saying, Catherine, this is what you're saying, but I'm going back to your question, Desiree. When we set it up as what women prefer, we're already assuming that something exists that is for very good reason been called into question, and there's been a lot of research to show that it should be called into question, and that it's quite harmful not to call it into question. And so this is where, as a philosopher, EP gets to me a little bit, or the way it gets used, is that there seems to be a quite a bit of circular reasoning happening where the um, one of the premises is the conclusion and it's being used in order to prove the conclusion. So that by assuming women and men exist as two separate things and you set up a possibility for someone to pursue someone else based on their characteristics that define them as different or somehow as serving different purposes. But again, I mean, without going into the entire history of feminism, we have a lot of good reasons to not accept that premise from the get-go. 
and to look for a differently designed kind of study. Yeah, I'll chime in here and say that uh, the the research data typically uh, shows bell curves, right? So you have a bell curve of uh, men uh, with regards to uh, a certain variable and the bell curve of, of women is slightly different. And so you're not looking at something that uh, everyone in one group is distinct from everyone in the other group regarding that variable. And yet, when the researchers and the people in the media talk about it, they will say women blank and men do this other thing. And rather than saying, on average, the data shows bell curves that are slightly different, blah, blah, blah. Uh, The effect size is rarely mentioned, sometimes even in the actual, uh, you know, study itself. And that's when we run into problems. Uh, maybe for the researchers, they understand that, and maybe academics can put all that in context. But the general public does not, and uh, it propagates certain destructive stereotypes and uh, paradigms. That that's that's why it's problematic, uh, and that's why it's controversial. Is because it gets picked up and used by sexists and racists, and it that's it. And it's when in well documented in the history of our society that now whether or not the researchers intended it, I'm guessing they didn't, but it, it gets picked up. For instance, I have a quote here from uh, Kingsley Brown, who is not a uh, uncontroversial figure, but respected as a commenter on evolutionary psychology, and he says, men tend for reasons traceable to our evolutionary heritage to engage in behaviors that cause them to earn more money than women. So I just want to repeat that. (laughs) Men tend for reasons traceable to our evolutionary heritage to engage in behaviors that cause them to earn more money than women. That is an offensive statement. Uh, It doesn't uh, have any scientific basis. It it ignores culture and oppression. And this is why it it gets my personal goat going (laughs) because I uh, would like to think that I – uh, try to uh, promote social justice, and when when I see science being used as a as a tool to oppress, it it bothers me. So is that the media's fault, or is that the fault of the field, though? I, th- I think it's the media's fault, but I think the scientific community could do better to educate the media. I think media can misrepresent some of these things. This is Maeve, but I think the fields often also have. Bear large responsibility for this because when claims are made, whether the intention of the researcher is malicious or benevolent, the claims have real significance and real power, and we know that. We, we know how power structures work. We understand that when something is said to be natural and something said to be cultural, those are given two very different evaluations by the average person, if there is such a thing as an average person. Uh, but I want to go back also to what Kirk said about race, bringing race into this. And Glenn, you mentioned earlier the study that you were doing that looked at male mortality and that it was spiking during mating years. Well, let's talk about one culture in particular, American anti-black racist culture, where we see it's not all men, right? With the factors that are playing a role here have a lot to do with things outside of reproductive success. We're looking at a lot of assumptions about the way a person's appearance indicates their value or their worth or even whether or not they should be considered a person. And we have black men, we also have black women, but we have a crisis around black men being killed and around black men being put in prison in this country. And that's, of course, affecting uh, 
biological reproduction for those people. And that kind of crisis could not have existed, whether we go back 2,000 years or 5,000 years or 100,000 years, because we didn't have the kind of prison conflicts that we have now. We didn't have the same kind of um, police structures that we have in place now. So any attempt to explain that high mortality using an evolutionary theory is already problematic from the start. I don't know if that makes sense, so I'm happy to um, explain it more. Okay, so I, I appreciate that. It's very well art- articulated, Maeve, and and I agree with you that um, that there there are certainly a, there are certainly major social issues that are more particular to certain uh, populations than than others. Um, but just to sort of briefly speak to to the issue of the male to female mortality ratio, a, a really intriguing um, follow up study that Dan Kruger did um, was to specifically look at um, a very um, I guess non a, a very white population in Europe, in fact. Um, and he specifically looked at the uh, male to female mortality ratio in the countries that were affected by the um, by the amelioration of communism. Um, sort of the drop, the uh, you know when when the when the wall kind of came down between mm-hmm. East and West mm-hmm. Germany, for instance. And and when you look at the male to female mortality ratio in those countries before the dropping of communism and after a very intriguing finding is that the male to me, uh, female mortality ratio is exacerbated when things go toward capitalism. Um, and the idea, and again, this is, you know, um, this is a hypothesis. It was driven by the past research. It was driven by an evolutionary based perspective. The hypothesis essentially was that capitalism is all about competition and that um, you already have in the natural human life cycle mate-related competition um, during the years of 15 and 25, roughly, for mate acquisition. And the prediction was that in these countries at this particular time, you would find an even exacerbated male-to-female mortality ratio, more males dying than females relative to in the time period before that. And that's exactly what was was found. So that research is, um, is something I'd say that's, it's really not about a particular subgroup or, um, you know, it's, it's not, it's not something I, I'll say that Dan Kruger does a lot of research in Flint, Michigan, actually, and he's very interested in people from highly unstable and, um, unpredictable environments. And a lot of his research has sort of come out of that particular area, but it's, uh, it's a, it's a, really cool research agenda, I think, that really comes out of evolutionary psychology that has implications for humans on a very large scale. And just Um, two quick responses, and I don't want to take up all our time on this, but thank you for that. And I like to see that kind of intersection analysis going on. I think it's important. And this goes back to Desiree's question about universalizing certain claims, is that I don't think we can be making these kind of universalizing claims. We can be making culturally specific claims, and there are certainly patterns and trends that are really important. But especially if we're talking about mortality around mating, what about the invention of antibiotics? You know, what about when doctors realized well, that they actually had to wash their hands? What about when we went from midwives to doctors? There were a lot of changes in uh, female mortality uh, during the mating years as a result of some of those practices. So if we're going to propose this as a, an adaptation, it seems to me at least problematic uh, because it seems that, as I understand, there's quite a big switch in terms of who dies uh, if we're going to talk about males and females more often during the mating years. 
So I'm glad to hear he's doing this rich analysis, but I also would be nervous about placing the sort of the origin or the cause of this back even 200 years. And I was going to say that's actually that that seems uh, problematic pretty much across the board with evolutionary psychology, that that there are equally likely non-evolutionary psychology explanations for for the behaviors and characteristics that we see. Are there not? Like, how do we prove an evolutionary conclusion over a cultural conclusion? Okay, so so this is Glenn, and I'll, I'll take that. I'm going to ask for some backup from my friend Catherine. Um, <laughs> but the uh, one of the things that evolutionary psychologists, I think, tend to reject out, out of the gate immediately is a distinction between a cultural explanation of something versus an evolutionary explanation of something. Um, we typically tend to see culture as a process that that is created by humans. And in fact, there are other organisms, um, depending how you define culture, where we can easily document the transmission of ideas um, from individual to individual, which is essentially what culture is. And it's it's really a product of evolution. Um, so the distinction or the dichotomy of cultural versus um, evolutionary, I, I think most people in our field tend to, tend to sort of say, well, that's a false dichotomy and it leads to a lot of um, assumptions or misconceptions about the field that don't really match how we think and how we do our research. Yeah, I would add to that, as Catherine here, that, you know, I think many of us, the culture is, in some aspects, another part of the environment. It's a part of environment that humans have a lot of influence over in the sense of the production of it. But I think that, that you know, most people in the field that are doing good work are, are, are keeping that in mind. I'd also like to just for a second go back to the issue about the male female mortality thing again as well. Because a lot of the early work, some of the work that preceded Dan Kruger's on this, um, looked at, at the difference in male-female mortality cross-culturally as the result of greater risk-taking uh, in males, as the reason why it's so high in, in young males, and looked at it specifically in terms of things like like homicide in terms of death due to misadventure, perhaps would be another way of putting it. Things like engaging in risky sports activities, risky driving activities, things like that in different cultures. Um, and so it was looking at, at, at the adaptive area being the point that males have to compete at that age because this is the time when those benefits uh, being successful at competition matter the most. And so some of the early work, including some of the stuff that was done by Martin Daly and Margot Wilson, looked very specifically at this cross-culturally, both looking at some historical data and also looking at, specifically looking at some hunter-gatherer populations that were still around at the time, um, as well as European population, Asian populations, populations in, in North America, and including Detroit, actually, was one of the um, groups that they looked at as well. And sort of documenting this, you know, not just that males have a greater mortality, but that it particularly peaks at this age and that you see that same pattern in, in virtually every culture that it's been studied in. But, but I would also say that I think they were very sensitive to what the environmental factors were that made it higher in some cultures, in some countries, other than others. So they talked about how the pattern was the same, but the absolute levels of violence, of course, differed. So the mortality rate due to homicide, the pattern may be similar in terms of the male female mortality, but the degree of death due to homicide varies between cross-cultures. And as Glenn was pointing out from Dan's work, there's evidence that 
the greater the degree of income inequality in the country, the greater the mortality due to violence uh, between young men in those countries, which I think does speak to some of these issues around, for example, what's happening, you know, in the United States, although there are certainly other issues as well that are contributing to the current problems here. Yeah, I really appreciate the way you're wording that, Catherine. I can get behind what you're saying in terms of, is there a tendency that humans evolved to do blank? And when you mix that in with culture, you see a general trend, but you also see variability in the behavior based on culture and circumstance. That is a what I would call a responsible statement uh, from an evolutionary psychology perspective. And I'm just going to come back to saying when we look at things like the history of colonialism and the history of slavery and the kind of uh, violence that we've seen against black men in American culture, we, we are not having the same kind of uh, not just selection pressures, but we're seeing huge variations. And that's just today. So I'm still not hearing how this is traceable to an adaption uh, or sorry, an, an, this isn't an adaption traceable to some sort of selection pressure going back in evolutionary time, at least to some degree. I can hear talking about culture today, you know, what kind of pressures. It's great to hear people talking about race, class, gender, these sorts of things together. But why is this being called an evolutionary adaptation? I'm not hearing that part. I don't think that anybody's claiming that the particular violence that, that I think what you're getting at, that, that say, for example, black men are facing in the United States, today in terms of the violence that may be coming from people outside of their own group, that 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 is something that's adaptive. I think that what we were arguing in terms of male-female mortality differences in general, that this is the result of an adaptation that increases risk-taking on the part of young men during a particular phase of their life. I think that there are a variety of other factors that are probably driving some of the issues with that particular group today in terms of that, of the different sources of, of mortality due to violence, because certainly there's also a non-trivial, at least in the area in which I live, there's a non-trivial amount of violence that's happening due to in-group so, for example, gang fighting um, between individuals in that population. But certainly there's stuff coming from outside. And I don't, nobody, I don't think anybody was arguing that the, 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 the outside forces are being driven by some sort of particularly evolutionary adaptation. We're just talking about the idea that risk-taking, that there are adaptations that have facilitated greater degrees of risk-taking in young males that have influenced this male-female mortality curve cross-culturally. Um, and yes, there are, there are individual factors that exacerbated in certain cultures. Although that's not speaking, the income inequality thing is not speaking specifically to race. It's speaking specifically to income inequality. And yes, in the U.S., that's often tied to race, but it isn't necessarily everywhere. Okay, now I'm going to interrupt here. I'm going to interrupt just because this brings me to a point uh, that I think we should really discuss, because it would be one thing if talking about evolutionary psychology and its limitations uh, was just an interesting academic exercise, uh, but it's not, because explaining some behaviors uh, using evolutionary psychology uh, is potentially harmful, correct? Absolutely. Oh, gosh, this is this is Glenn from New York, and I got to say, I'm going to respectfully disagree with that Um, from where I stand, evolu- the, the principles of evolution, Darwin's ideas on evolution shed so much light on what it means to be part of the living world, with humans being no exception to that. Um, our entire understanding of what life is fully changed uh, upon the publication of Darwin's work. And his ideas not only changed the nature of biology, but when you start looking at Darwinian, un- uh, Darwinian approach to understanding 
fitness, for instance, and um, nutrition and parenting and education, there are just so many. There's to, to not use, I guess, from my perspective, Darwin's theory is one of the most powerful intellectual toolboxes we have. And so if you're trying to understand some issue of um, what it means to be human with humans being a subset of life, to not go to that toolbox um, regarding whatever you're studying is doing your, yourself and your own work a disservice. This is Maeve. I don't hear Desiree saying not to use it. I think I hear her saying that the use of it at present is extremely harmful and has been shown to be harmful. And you didn't say all of this, Desiree. I don't mean to words complete in your mouth, no, um, no, no. Go, but that it has that ahead. potential and it's, a, and it's a potential that's been actualized. So I don't hear you saying don't do any kind of evolutionary science. I, I hear the question as Let's what are do it right. lim- appropriate limits? Right. Well, yeah. As an, as an example of, of, of harm, Dr. Satoshi Kanazawa, a psychologist and evolutionary psychology researcher, wrote that black women are less attractive than women of other races due to evolution. And this is a quote, the only thing I can think of, this is Satoshi writing, the only thing I can think of that might potentially explain the lower average level of physical attractiveness among black women is testosterone. This is, uh, you know, if used in a particular way, or even just if a, if a, if a black person read this and didn't understand and the privilege and power of this scientist to, to say such a thing, you know, it holds weight. And this is destructive. If I was a black woman, this would hurt my feelings. I would think, oh, I'm, I'm doomed to be less physically attractive. Science has proven that. Right. Catherine here. I just want to stick in sort of two cents on some of this stuff, too. I think that, I mean, anything can be, can, can be harmful if it's used in the wrong way. But I think that most people, at least that I know, that are working in this field are interested in understanding human behavior better. And having a good articulation of a scientific articulation of what's going on behind human behavior in the same way that someone studying dogs or cats or whales or whatever is interested in understanding the factors that influence the behavior of those individuals. And so to me, what I would just say is that if we're looking at uh, at the goal being a better understanding of human behavior, then if the conclusions are correct, then... You know, I think that's valuable. Um, and, and I'll give an example that I'm sure is one that, that many people, because I know it was highly criticized when it came out, but I think that the value of doing the work is, is really important, regardless of the conclusion. So people who do research looking at rape, for example, from an evolutionary perspective, there are people who argue that there's adaptations involved. There's people who argue that this is a byproduct of male aggression, that argue different things. Some people say that doing that research is problematic, but in the end, you want to understand this behavior because in the end, most of us want this behavior reduced, right? We want to have this to be less of a problem in terms of behavior. So from my perspective, I think there's a great value in taking this perspective and doing the research well and getting it right. That doesn't mean that some people won't do the research wrong and get the wrong answer, you know, as well. And by wrong answer, I, I don't mean whether it's, it's, you know, a politically correct answer, whether it's a really positive humans are bright and shiny answer, or whether it's a humans are dark and scary answer. But having a good understanding of what produces behavior, I think is really important regardless of, you know, some of the other issues. I do think that there's a problem sometimes in the translation of research from the researcher to, you know, to disseminating to other researchers to the popular press. 
And there's lots of reasons for why that happens, including that sometimes, you know, on the researcher's part, we might not be good at explaining our research in ways that um, that the general public can understand or the person who's interviewing us understands. Um, and there's some onus on the, the you know, the... the the media people that are reporting on it to actually not be scientifically illiterate, which some of them are. And so I think that there are a number of factors that can contribute to some of these situations that, that people will point out as being problematic. But to me, the danger is not in, in taking um, this kind of perspective. Um, there's always a danger when, when research is done wrong, but I think getting the right answer in the end in terms of understanding the factors that motivate behavior is what's really important. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said, Catherine. I, I think uh, I can get on board with, with everything you're saying. The, the only thing I'll add is that the reason why people get scared when scientists start looking at a subject like rape is because historically mm -hmm. there are plenty of examples in which scientists have not been socially responsible in their research and in their reporting. Uh, so people have a, a natural uh, cringe and flinching reaction that they sure. will react to. But I agree that uh, it should be looked at and it's a valid, you know, area of study. This is Maeve again. Um, I, this is where I, I respectfully disagree with, I think, all three of you. Uh, there's a real harm being perpetrated here when all of the work that's been done by rape survivors and, and others in other fields to explain why rape occurs is ignored, and the question is posed as if it's a brand new question. And the people I know, they're not scared, they're not cringing, they're furious, because once again, their voices aren't being heard. Um, and that's an area that philosophy is now doing a great deal of work on is the epistemology of ignorance and how it is that um, certain forms of knowledge are presented in ways that rule out the possibility of other answers from the beginning. And then the harm being done there is that the answers ruled out affect real people. Um, so if if these scientists studying rape want to start by saying, I disagree with all the theories that are out there so far about ra why rape occurs, what it has to do with power and structure and all that, and I'm going to look at a biological mechanism that occurs in, under cultural pressures, then we maybe we could talk about it. I, and I know uh, that's probably an oversimplification, but it's I'm, I'm – <laughs> It's very distressing when people want to act as if these are objective, neutral questions when they're not. What we choose to study, how we study it, who we share those results with, what gets picked up, none of those are neutral. None of those are a matter of pure, valueless work. They're all happening in a context in which real harm has happened. And I know the researchers doing this, they could be out there, you know, volunteering at rape survivor clinics. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a problem with asking these questions as if they're neutral, objective questions. Uh, this, this is Glenn here, uh, and thank you for that, that thoughtful set of comments, Maeve. I think I agree with an awful lot of what you're saying. I don't think it necessarily relates to evolutionary psychology per se, but to how scholars address very important kinds of social issues. Um, I'm just going to give a, a brief example of uh, some work related to evolutionary psychology and rape that was presented on our campus um, by Gordon Gallup recently. He's a renowned evolutionary psychologist. And it was, it was an, I, I thought, a very useful uh, way to understand this, um, this important social issue that was informed, I think, or enlightened, at least for me and for several of the students who are present from an evolutionary perspective. So Gordon has, um, for decades now, conducted research across various species on something called tonic immobility which is the tendency um, when an animal essentially plays possum. 
And um, lots of species, when they're under attack, particularly from some kind of predator, or if there are stimuli, predator-related stimuli in the environment, a, a sort of um, last resort, behavioral resort, is tonic immobility. And it's amazingly similar across lots of different prey species. Um, and it seems to have some kind of adaptive outcome because if the predator leaves you alone, a lot of predators such as cat, if a, a cat won't, if a cat is, uh, has a mouse and the mouse stops moving, the cat leaves it alone. Um, so there's, um, there seems to be predators seem to, um, seem to, uh, leave alone a body that is not moving. The, the way that Gordon applied this to rape, I thought was absolutely in, intriguing, where he, he talked about rape paralysis, and he put up a whole bunch of features about rape paralysis, which is uh, presumably uh, experienced and reported by a, a high proportion of rape victims, seems to actually parallel tonic immobility in a ver variety of vertebrate species in a lot of ways. And what's concerning about that, if it is some kind of behavioral adaptation, it's concerning because there are several states apparently still to this day that, um, that will blame the victim and that if the woman reports not fighting back, then she's not, um, not going to fare well in the judicial system. And so I think that, that this particular evolutionary analysis, um, is not only really intriguing and important to think about, from a comparative animal um, cross-species perspective, but it also has, it, it also could potentially be used to help inform better, um, sort of a better approach in the, at the judicial level. That's a great explanation. And I think what I would just want to look at is sort of different forms of violence, but I like that. And I just want to add in that um, in my preparing for the interview of Glenn, I saw that you were one of the co-founders of the Feminist Evolutionary Psychology Organization. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. And so the reason I got interested in this at all, I'm a philosopher by training, is because I think the more interdisciplinary we can be and the more aware of the context of our work, the more important it is. So I appreciate um, what you just said. Oh, oh very good. Let's Let's end the interview with a point that we agree on. Thanks very much, guys. We, we are completely out of time, but you, you are all fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. Great. Thank Thanks for having us. Thank you, Desiree, Thank you and it was much. great to meet everyone. And we've linked to all of the panelists on our site at scienceforthepeople.ca. And that's it for us. We'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. 
You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.